Well, my wife and I were at Barnes and Noble recently, um, and I like being at Barnes and Noble because it makes me feel a little bit smarter and a little bit cooler just for being there, right? You know, I mean, Barnes and Noble, everybody's talking in hushed tones. There's lots of books, people walking around with espresso. It's like a hipster coffee shop in a library got married and had a baby, you know? It's just cool being there. And uh, so we were hanging out. My wife had a section she wanted to go look at and check out some books in a certain area. And I went over to the business bestsellers area because I... I like looking at those books. And the reason is because I'm ADD and uh, I don't like a lot of fluff and, and, you know, I don't like wading through really, you know, crazy deep material. I love these books because they tend to be motivational, they tend to be how-to books, they tend to have a lot of really great stories. And so, you know, I made a beeline for that section. And specifically, I wanted to try out something new. I'd been talking to a friend who was really a, an incredible businessman and, and I knew he he's like, just goes through immense amounts of business books and, and somehow synthesizes that information and, and uses it. And I thought, how does he read all this stuff? I know he's super busy. And so I asked him, I said, do you mind telling me, what's your secret? How do you wade through all of these books? And, uh, and he said, well, here's what I do. He said, I go to, you know, when I'm traveling, when I get on an airplane, he said, I go to the, the bookstore, I get seven or eight of the, the new, you know, hot business books that are out. And he said, while I'm on the plane, I read them. And I said, you must be one incredible speed reader. He said, no, not really. He said, I have this habit. See, I read the first 10 pages and the last 10 paragraphs. And he said, I'll take those seven or eight books and I'll figure out what do the first 10 pages and the last 10 paragraphs of those books all have in common. And then he said, I will focus on that thing for the next six months. He said, it's worked great for me for a long time. So I thought, here I am, Barnes & Noble, no shortage of business bestsellers, I'll try it out. So I picked up, you know, nine or ten books, read the first ten pages, last ten paragraphs, and here's what I found. I did find that there was something they all had in common. It apparently was a really big deal because they were all talking about it. This is what I found the convergence was. All of these books were trying to teach people how to have charisma and influence. And not just one, it was trying to teach people how to have both. And the reason for that is this. When, when we talk about charisma, what are we talking about? We're talking about whatever that it factor is that makes you a people magnet. It draws people to you. Folks want to hang with you. They want to be your friend. They want to listen to what you have to say, right? That's charisma. It sort of draws a crowd. And then influence is the ability to drive change. It's, the, it's, it's, it's vision. It's talent. It's skill. It's getting someplace. So if you think about it, that is exactly what leadership demands. Leadership demands both. Right? Because you have to have charisma to get people around you, and you have to have influence to get them to go somewhere. I mean, we've known people who have one but not the other, right? You know people who are charismatic, but they don't have influence. So they're fun to be around, and everybody loves them, but there's some sort of lack when it comes to knowing how to move the ball down the field. But then you also know, and I think this is most common, I feel like I look around my world and, and or around the world that I'm in and see lots of people that are like this. There are people who have tremendous influence. They have vision, they have talent, they have skill, but no charisma, right? So they, have, they, they are going somewhere, but they don't ever have a crowd of people around them to lead. And my dad has told me this my whole life. Jonathan, if you think you're a leader and you look behind you and there's nobody following, you're just a guy out taking a walk. So we need this, we need to have both charisma and influence, and, and, and I was thinking about this as I was sort of processing these, these attributes, that the people that I think are most, um, uh, well, I'll give you an example of this. I was talking to, a, I was talking to a, uh, an older business uh, executive at one point, we were talking about public communication, how it shifted over the years. I'm only 35, but in the, in the last three decades, 
people communicating in the public sphere, the way that works has just totally turned around. And we were talking about um, the importance of being able to engage people graciously and to be able to win a hearing and all those sorts of things. And he said, it's just like in the John F. Kennedy press conferences. And I said, how old do I look to you? I was not around for the John F. Kennedy press conferences. I want you to know my dad was in grade school when President Kennedy was assassinated. He said, no, I want to send this to you. I'm going to send you a YouTube link because when you see this, you're going to be blown away. And I said, okay, send me the link. So he sent it to me and I watched this string of clips from Kennedy's press conferences where he was being asked crazy difficult questions, hard questions being thrown at him and he was fielding them like a top-notch pro. I mean, the guy was humorous, he was fun to listen to, he was engaging, he, he handled difficult situations with panache and with, uh, and with dignity, and I thought, this guy has it. He has influence, you know, but he also has that charisma thing going on. And as I was watching that, I kind of, I would listen to him feel the question and I would just sort of smile. And I would think to myself, boy, I would have loved to have had dinner with him. Not, a, not as though the whole rest of the country wouldn't have loved to have had dinner with John F. Kennedy. I'm sure that's true. But I was thinking, I would have loved to have had dinner with this guy just to pick his brain because he seems like such a cool guy when it comes to just talking through stuff. <clears throat> and I think sometimes we, we think about what it would be like to follow Jesus, to be one of Jesus' disciples, or to be around when... when Jesus was teaching, and you know, he seems like such a towering figure, has so much important stuff to say. You know what, though? I think Jesus would have been the kind of person to be around him, would have been the sort of person that would have made you smile, and you would have thought, man, I'd love to just have dinner with that guy and pick his brain. I'd love to just, just learn more from him, because he seems, because he had it, he had the charisma, and he, he influenced the world like nobody else has ever influenced this planet. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5, we are to be imitators, imitators of Christ as his dearly loved children. So what does that mean? It means, and this is a new thought maybe for some of us, but it means that God has called us to be charismatic and influential. God has called us to be people, people, right? Some people say, well, that person's a people person and that person's not a people person. Listen, once we decide to follow God, we don't have any choice in the matter. All of us are called to be a people person. All of us are called to be people, people. And so it's important for us to have both the skills of, of being that person that other people want to be around and other people want to connect to, and also being the person that has a vision that can move uh, the ball down the field. And so I want to talk to you about one specific slice of Jesus and his communication style, because that's what we're talking about with King of Talk, how Jesus communicated. One slice of how Jesus' communication style brought this charisma, uh, the charisma and influence to what he did and how it can impact your life moving forward and your relationships. When we were developing this series, and I knew we were going to be talking about Jesus' communication style, I just started reading through the Gospels over and over, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, seeing what how Jesus communicated. And there was one thing that really leapt off the page to me, and that was that Jesus asked a lot of questions, right? I saw a lot of question marks. So I, 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 I got a highlighter out. I took one of the copies of the scriptures that I have in my office. I have several copies of the Bible, and I just took one copy of the Bible, and I decided to look for red ink and question marks. I was just going to highlight just the questions that Jesus asked. And no joke, I, I actually ran out of ink in my highlighter, because he asked so many questions. He asked questions when he was healing people. He asked questions of his disciples. A ton of the time when he was teaching, he asked questions. And as I was just sort of playing around with this in my mind, it dawned on me that this sort of blew up a theory that I've had for a long time about communication. It sort of, uh, it sort of made me rethink a lot of stuff this week. Because I've always had this thought that questions are something I ask for my benefit. And statements are something I make for your benefit. 
If I ask a question, it's because I need something. I need information from you. I need you to tell me something. I need you to, to give me some feedback, whatever. But it's because of my need. I need something, so I ask a question. A statement is something I make because of what you need. I don't need to know what I'm getting ready to say because I already know what I'm getting ready to say. You need to know what I'm getting ready to say, right? But the whole thing, that whole theory got blown up by the fact that Jesus asked questions because Jesus doesn't need anything. If questions are something I ask because I need something, then why did Jesus ask questions? Because he didn't need information. He didn't need feedback. He knows everything. And it dawned on me there must be a way of asking questions that somehow benefits the other person. I'm, I'm asking questions for their benefit. And man, that just opened up this whole new way of thinking that this week I started looking at the questions Jesus asked. I just went through them one at a time and I started trying to figure out what was Jesus trying to bring to this conversation by asking a question? What was he trying to give the other person by asking a question? And man, this is so huge. It's been huge for me. I hope, it's, I hope it'll be helpful for you. I just want to talk to you about three things that Jesus continually brought to conversations by asking a question. And I want to give you a couple questions you can put in your hip pocket to, to know that you've got them there and you can use them in your communications, okay? But here's the first thing that Jesus brought to communications uh, when he asked a question, and that's humility, right? What is, what is, what is humility? Humility is, a, is the act of putting somebody else first, it's, it's the act of saying someone else or something else is more important than me. And this is, this is true. This is very scriptural, right? The Bible says that in the elevator of life, proud people are going down and humble people are going up, right? Proverbs 29, 23 says this. Pride ends in humiliation, or your translation may say proud people are going to be brought low, while humility brings honor, and it works the same in relationships, Right? I mean, I'm, I do couples coaching. I've done that now for seven years, and I've read all, not all the books. There would be impossible. But I've read a lot of books. Sometimes it feels like I've read all the books. Um, and there's all kinds of theories about why marriages succeed or fail, why relationships succeed or fail. And they're, um, most of them have good research behind them, but, and, and, and we could agree with them in points. But if you want to zoom out and take a global view, take a Google Earth view of why relationships succeed or fail, this is where it's at. Relationships that are high in humility succeed, and relationships that are high in pride fail, right? And there are a bunch of reasons for that. But let's, let's zone back into communication. Why is pride and humility such a key index when it comes to how we talk and how we communicate in relationships? Well, it's for this one reason. When we get proud or when we get to a point where we start to allow ourselves to feel like what my, my opinion is the most important, what I have to say is the most important thing in the room, what it does is it crimps off the flow of information to us, right? Because you know this. If you've been in a relationship with a person who's kind of gotten a little lifted up in pride, or you, you're around somebody at work who sort of has a proud demeanor, you know that they don't take information well. You can't give them information because they feel like they already know everything. They feel like they've already got it. They've, they've got it figured out. So you try to give them feedback, you try to give them information, but it's like... It stops because the flow of information has been crimped off. That's what pride does. Alan Mulally uh, was an executive with Ford Motor Company. Uh, he was brought in as the chief executive to turn the company around at, at what was a terrible time for uh, automotive companies in the U.S. And um, 
the, one of the first things he was very aware of is we need to get some feedback. We need to get some information about why our cars are not doing well in the marketplace. And so he got on one of the company's jets and took two of the chief engineers of Ford with him, and they flew to Connecticut where the headquarters of Consumer Reports is, and they started just asking Consumer Reports, would you give us some just point-by-point -point feedback on our vehicles? And they went through the whole line. Specifically, they were interested in the Edge, which was a new SUV for Ford at the time. And so the Consumer Reports started telling them about the problems with this SUV. Listen, they said the steering is mushy, and, and, and uh, you know, you've got a couple other issues with it, but specifically the rear hatch is just a terrible design, and we've got a real issue with the way the door works. And uh, at first, Ford engineers that came along with Mulally just kind of kept their mouths shut. But they got to a point where they just couldn't, they couldn't allow their work to be assaulted anymore. So they started explaining why their car was bad. They started saying, here's why the steering is mushy. And they started saying, well, here's why the rear door had to be designed that way. And, and Mulally grabs his satchel. He reaches into his satchel. And he takes two legal pads and two pins out. And he puts in front of each of his engineers a legal pad and a pin. And he says, guys, why don't we just listen and take notes? And why did he do that? Because he recognized pride had seeped into the company and it had crimped off the flow of information. And he was saying, until we open that back up and until we start taking in the feedback that we need to hear, nothing is going to get better. He understood that when that information is missing, we're setting ourselves up for a radically difficult moment. Here's what I mean by that. Um, when, you know, in graduate school, I uh, had a... Um, class that I had taken. I was getting ready to take the final exam. And I test well. You should know that's one of the few things that I do well in the academic world. I test well. I'm not, I'm not the greatest at papers. I'm not the greatest at, at, at projects and presentations. But when it comes to tests, I, I guess I have the spiritual gift of test taking is all I know. I, I, but I, so my point in saying this is I'm used to the routine. You know, you cram, you, you, you take the material that the teacher gives you and you just really focus on it. And then you go in and you, you see questions and you recognize them. You know what that's about. You answer it. And um, that's what I was expecting when I was going to take this final. What I did not know is that the professor had changed the textbook over between the last time he taught this class and this time, and uh, he was very busy, and he was going to rewrite the final, but he ended up not having time, so he scanned through the, the questions on his old final, and he said, yeah, I think we pretty much covered this stuff. He was wrong. Uh, so as I sat down at the, at the screen, to, to take this test, I felt like I was kind of in the twilight zone. Have you ever had this experience? You're taking a test and you go, I don't even know what this term is. I, I don't know what you mean by this. What do you mean by this question? I've never seen this stuff before in my life. And I thought, am I having a bad dream? Because I've had bad dreams on the night before test day where I took a test and didn't recognize any of the information. But see, this is what happened. The, the flow of information that I needed had gotten crimped off, and so when the test came, I didn't know any of the answers. See, I see that in my couples work sometimes. My wife, Wendy, is a, a phenomenal relationship coach. She also is my assistant, so she, she fields um, calls that come in for people that want to see me as well as the calls that come in for her. And we have something that we call frantic mode, and we don't use that as a pejorative. We're not making fun of anybody when we say that. It's just definitely something that we both recognize what it is, because what will happen is there'll be a phone call from a, usually a guy, and the, it'll be like this. Hey, something has gone wrong in my marriage. I'm not even really sure what it is, um, but the whole thing is falling apart. We need to see Jonathan in 20 minutes. I've sent six dozen roses to her office. I've called her parents. I've called her friends. I've tried to talk to anybody who will get me into, you know, who, who can try to figure out what's going on, and, and I just am I'm, I'm beside myself, and, and I'm, I'm it's been five minutes now, 15 minutes. Can we see Jonathan in 15 minutes, you know? Eventually, I'm going to sit across from this couple, not in 15 minutes, but eventually, I'm going to sit across from this couple, and I'm going to ask her, when did this start for you? 
You know what she'll say? She'll say, it started about eight years ago. Well, was it like, a, was it like just barely starting and then all of a sudden like a week ago or something, it just skyrocketed? No, it's been pretty steady. It's gotten pretty steadily worse over eight years. And I'll look at him and I'll say, when did this start for you? About two hours ago was when it started, really, you know. <laughs> Why the different answers to the question? Because at some point, the flow of information got crimped off, and now the test is coming. He doesn't know any of the answers. That's why humility is so important. So I want to read you something. This is in Matthew chapter 13. It's really crucial to understanding why being a person who brings humility to a conversation helps us be the kind of person people want to talk to. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said, for the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears can't hear and they've closed their eyes and their eyes can't see and their ears can't hear. You noticing a theme here? Uh, and, and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me. For those of you who are parents, there was a point probably where your two-year-old, at some point you told your two-year-old something that they didn't want to hear and they did what? They go, la, 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 I'm not listening, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying adults can do this too. We can close our ears and we can close our eyes and we can crimp off the flow of information. And you know what Jesus called that? He called that having a hard heart. You ever talk to somebody and it's like talking to a brick wall? That's what he's talking about. We, we close off, and that's why we say, I don't want to talk to that person. It's like talking to a brick wall. Or when we talk to somebody who really gets it and they care and they're listening, we go, I love talking to that person because they get it. That's how crucial this is. So let me, let me take you to a question you can use. <clears throat> I, want, I wanted to give you some practical questions you could use for, for these things that we're gonna be talking about today. So for bringing humility to a conversation, let me give you this question. It's not original to me. Most of you have heard somebody say this at some point in time. But just as something you can keep to use in conversations, try this question. Can you help me understand, and then fill in the blank. Can you help me understand why you feel that way? Can you help me understand what, what made you say that just now? Can you help me understand why you feel that I was thinking that? I mean, this, this question works in so many different situations, and what is it doing? It's opening up the flow of information and saying, I'm missing something here. That's one of the most powerful things in marriage, in family, in work that you can, you can add to your communication toolbox is the realization that if something strikes me the wrong way, most of the time it's because I'm missing some information that I really need. Can you help me understand this, right? Now, Here's where Proverbs really comes into play with this. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1 says this, Unfriendly people care only about themselves. Fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. Right? Now that word unfriendly, if we look at it in the Hebrew, we could just as easily render it repellent. Right? So we could say that uh, a repellent person only cares about themselves. Don't want to understand anything. They just want to air their own opinions. Right? So... As far as charisma goes, we've been talking about charisma. When, when summertime rolls around uh, in Wichita, Kansas, I find that as far as mosquitoes are concerned, I'm a very charismatic person. Because they find me from all over the place, you know? And, and so what do I do before I go out of the house? I take some mosquito repellent and I spray myself with it before I leave the house so that hopefully those things will stay away from me. And the Bible is saying that when we get to the point where we think that what we have to say is more important than what somebody else has to say, it's like spraying ourselves with people repellent before we leave the house. And we wonder, well, why am I not connecting with people? I don't understand why relationships have been so difficult. Why is communication so difficult? But we get to that point where we think, well, what I have to say is most important, and it's just spraying people repellent before we leave. 
It's so important for us to open up that flow of information. Let's, let's reverse the verse. We can do this sometimes in Proverbs because sometimes Proverbs will make the negative case, but we'll look at the positive case here. So we know that then that if, if what the Bible's saying is true, and it is in Proverbs, that charismatic people, attractive people care about others, and wise people want to understand they care about other people's opinions. So when we ask the question, can you help me understand, we're saying, I care about you. I care about your opinion. I care about where you're coming from, okay? Here's the second thing that we bring to a conversation with questions. The second thing we bring is freedom. And here's what I mean by that. And don't raise your hand, but have you ever been around a controlling person, a manipulative person? Have you noticed that the, the, the one thing about all controlling people, the unifying thing about controlling people is they want you to think, act, behave, do things their way. They will tell you how to think, they will tell you how to behave, they will tell you how to act, right? But the difference between a controlling person and a healthy person is a healthy person won't tell you what to think and they won't tell you what to conclude and they won't tell you how to act. What they will do is they will present you with information and they will call you to make a decision. It'll be your decision, but they'll present you with information and ask you, what do you think? What's your take on this? Uh, in, in Chip and Dan Heath's um, uh, wonderful book, uh, Made to Stick, they talked about a uh, hospital where there was a hand-washing issue, a hand-washing compliance issue, which that'll just sort of make you cringe a little bit, but uh, in, in the health world, there is a, a, a benchmark, for, manda for uh, a mandatory benchmark for compliance. You have to hit 90% in compliance in hand-washing um, um, habits of the staff. And unfortunately, this one hospital just continually sat at 80, and they tried all kinds of things. They tried the heavy-handed approach. They tried to really just hit people hard on how bad what they were doing was. And, and everything they tried, you know, tried to, uh, to penalize people, nothing worked. So eventually what they did is they, and this was really smart, they set up a lunch for 20 people. 20, it was a mixture of doctors and hospital administrators. They invited them to lunch. They all came together. They had a lunch. But before they would let them go back to their job, they brought in these 20 Petri dishes that were sterile, but they had a, a growth medium in it. And they had each of these doctors put their hand on the inside of the Petri dish, and then they let that stuff grow. Now, you know what, this, what that stuff looks like if you let it live around for a while. All this junk and gross and fungus and stuff, you know, grew multicolored nastiness. And they brought in a photographer to take really high-resolution images of all the stuff that grew in these 20 Petri dishes. And then they sent that out via email to everybody in the hospital. At which point, the hand-washing compliance went up to nearly 100%. Right? Because this is the way change works. See, so often we want to we communicate to bring about a change. We want to communicate to bring about a change in a relationship or a change uh, at work or a change uh, with our kids. And what we have to recognize is that people, don't, people are not talked into change, they're not controlled into change, they're not cajoled, leveraged, manipulated into change, certainly not long-term change. Now, you might talk somebody into changing for a week or two, but you're not going to get real change by talking somebody into something. Change only happens when a person can change with dignity. They can only change when the idea starts with them. So what a person does that's healthy is they present somebody with information and then they give them a chance to make a call. Jesus did this over and over and over and over again. If you read his teaching, often he would be getting ready to tell a parable, a, a story that had a really important meaning. But before he would even start talking about the parable, he would say this. He would say, what do you think about this? And then he'd tell the story. Because he was presenting that person with information, but they were the person who was going to need to make a call on what it meant and how it should impact their lives. Freedom, it's, it's an important thing. What's your take on this? What do you think? 
This is in Luke chapter 7. But in, in Luke chapter 7, uh, Jesus was at a, the house of a, of a Bible teacher. And while he was there uh, having dinner, this woman that the Bible calls an immoral woman came in and took a, a very expensive box of perfume and broke it over Jesus' feet and was weeping at Jesus' feet. And the Bible teacher did not handle it very well. The Bible says that when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, now keep in mind, he's not saying this out loud, he's saying this to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. And then Jesus answered his thoughts, which I just think is really cool that Jesus can speak to what we're thinking. Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Now, this would have been the point at which Jesus could have said, Simon, I just want to let you know that you're an idiot. I don't understand how you could get so far off the beaten path. You've studied the scriptures. You've read the scriptures. Why on earth would you think that this was a way? You know, you just really need to get your head straight. And quit being such a jerk, you know? But he didn't do that. Look at what he says. He says, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Do you see what he's doing? He's giving information and he says, what's your take on this? What do you think? Do you know that most people that we know in our life where there's a need for a change they haven't even really thought it through yet. When we make bad decisions, when we make bad choices, a lot of times we haven't even really thought it through. And when we approach a person with freedom in a question, we're basically saying, have you thought this through? Have you, have you thought it through? What, what is your take on this? What do you think? And we open up a dialogue. It's a powerful, powerful thing. So there's your question for that. Uh, when we try to bring freedom to a, to a conversation, to ask, what's your take? What do you think? And by the way, parents, please, all antenna up. Parents, we should be asking our kids, what do you think? Our kids are always asking us questions, right? Kids are experts at asking questions. And we're expert at giving answers because we get to that point where we think what I have to say is important, right? And I ask questions because I need something, and they ask me questions because they need something, and I'm going to make a statement to fill their needs. I'm going to give them information to meet their needs, and certainly we should be doing that. But there is a point at which we need to ask a question. What do you think? What's your take on this? Right? Okay, move, moving on. Here's the third thing that we bring to a relationship with questions, and that is value. We bring, we bring value. Why did Jesus come to this planet Anyhow, I mean, why, why do you have Jesus walking on earth, going about his ministry, touching people's lives, healing people, dying on a cross? It was, it was a message of his value for us because there had been this breakup in the relationship between humanity and God, and God didn't want to leave it that way. He wanted to show us that he valued us, right? It's right there in John 3.16, a passage that many of us have committed to memory. The Bible says God did this because he loved us, because God loved the world so much. It's a, it was a message of, of value. As a matter of fact, the number one question you will ever answer in your life is a value question, right? Because the moment that your sins were paid for when Jesus died on that cross, it was like a question where Jesus was reaching out to you and saying, would you like to have a relationship with me? And that's a value question. Jesus was saying, I want to show you that I value you, right? So, I, I want to I back up for that for a second, and I want to talk about something that you can do to show value in your relationships, right? Because 
here's the deal. I think most of the time we're pretty good at this. I think most of the time we're pretty good at showing value to people that we, we care about. Where, where, that whole, where, where that whole thing falls apart is when we have to deal with somebody who's being unreasonable. Right? We're not really very good, I think naturally, we're not very good at, 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 at showing value to somebody who's being un, unreasonable. And I noticed this when I first started doing marriage coaching because over and over again I kept hearing that word. My husband is just unreasonable, you know? So fix him. That's why I brought him to you, Jonathan. I dropped him off on your doorstep. Fix my husband. Make him quit being unreasonable, you know? And this guy's telling me, it's not me, it's her. She's unreasonable. She's the one who doesn't, you know, she doesn't, doesn't like anything I say. She doesn't like, think, like anything that I do. She's a completely unreasonable woman. And after years of working with couples, I've come to this conclusion. I have, I've come to the conclusion, if you're married in this room, you did marry an unreasonable person. So did they, Right? You work with unreasonable people. If you have kids, you have little unreasonable people running around your house. Unreasonable people, that's what we all are. All of us are unreasonable, right? But I came to this conclusion a long time ago. I came to the conclusion that underneath every unreasonable reaction is a reasonable pain or fear. Always, 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 without exception, underneath every unreasonable reaction is a reasonable pain or fear. Do you know that's why Jesus was able to deal with unreasonable people when he was on this planet? is because he knew that underneath there was something that needed to be discussed. There was something that needed to be talked about. He needed to get underneath the unreasonableness that the person brought to him. And then so when we talk about communicating value, I want to share this with you. And, and, and here's the thing. This is something that I've shared all across. You know, I've, I've traveled different places in the country. I've shared this. We've shared this here at New Spring a lot with couples and couples events and so, so forth, that sort of thing. But we teach couples to ask one question to help communicate value when they're talking to an unreasonable person. And I want to give that to you because it might be helpful for you, right? So if we are right that every unreasonable reaction covers up a reasonable pain or fear, we use this question to get to that reasonable pain or fear. And the question is simply this, what is it about that that bothers you so much? Right? What happens when somebody is unreasonable and they bring us something unreasonable is we want to argue with them. We want to debate it. We want to tell them what, where they're wrong. And we want to show them that they're being unreasonable. Or, or sometimes we, we even negate it. And we just try to tell them, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to address that because you're so wrong. I'm not, it's not important to me, and you're wrong, so pfft, we're done, right? Us guy, guys especially, we're great at minimizing problems, right? Oh, it's not as big a deal as you say it is, right? I don't know why you're making such a big deal out of this, right? Or we, or we think it is a big deal, and I'm going to tell you how wrong you are. That's debating, right? And then we get into this huge back-and-forth argument. Instead, we say, what is it about this that bothers you so much? We skip the question of who's right, and we get to the question of what's really going on. When Wendy and I teach this to couples, we talk about the what and the why. We say that every conflict, no matter who you have it with, has an issue. That's the what, it's the content. And we say it's, it's really relatively unimportant. As a matter of fact, you ask the average person who's in a, who's in a fight with somebody, if you ask them uh, uh, why they're fighting, they won't tell you why they're fighting. They'll tell you what they're fighting about. They'll tell you what the issue is. But we believe underneath that issue, there's some sort of really big emotional push that's driving the train. We call that the why. And so by asking that question, what is it about that that bothers you so much, the goal is to get to the why that's underneath it. And I'll give you an example of this, and I will warn you ahead of time. I've told this story all over, and I've told it here a few times, so this may be something, if you're a couple and you've been to a couple's event, this, this won't be new to you, so I apologize for that. But it's a, a good way of kind of illustrating what we're talking about. When I turned 30, uh, my body unaccountably turned against me. I, I don't know why. I, I had weighed the same amount since I was in college, and you know, within a pound or two, the whole time, and uh, suddenly within like two months, I'd put on like 25 pounds, and I was you know just really convinced that I was dying and and uh, you know very sick, and so 
I went to the doctor and I said, I'm obviously very ill and, and you need to figure out what's wrong with me, you know, I don't know, what, you know, run some tests, do something. And, and she humored me. She said, all right, we'll run some tests, you know. So they ran the battery of all the blood work and all that stuff. And, and um, she called me back in to go over the results. And, and uh, she, she had a very, the doctor that I had at the time, she had a very dry sense of humor and she knew she could kid me because I'm that kind of person, you can joke with me. And she came in and she said, you know, Jonathan, um, got your results here and, and, uh, and you're not sick. I, I, I think you're just lazy and, uh, you know, and... Uh, it's like, you're 30 now. You're going to have to work at this. If you want to keep the same weight, you're going to have to diet and exercise. And, you know, diet and exercise together, I don't like to overdo it, you know? Like, I thought I'll just try one of those and then see how it goes, you know? So I decided, you know, I'd, I'd never been a runner before. I'd never run before, but I thought I would give this a shot. It looked fun to me. And, and so I, you know, I got that. You know, I, knew I, I knew I needed to get into the whole runner thing. So I got the app for my phone and uh, to track my runs. And because I don't look like a goober enough as it is, I got the holster to put on my, on my arm so I can put my phone in it, you know? And, and, uh, and nobody warned me about this in advance. These apps are, are brutal for your self-esteem, you know, because the first night you run, they give you these ribbons and badges. They're digital ribbons and badges, but they give these to you because you ran farther and faster than ever before because you never ran before. But <laughs> now I have to have these ribbons, right? Like, I'm very competitive. And, and if you're in this room and you're competitive, you know that the best kind of competition is a competition with yourself. And I have to, like, it's like a sample of a drug. They gave me the badges once. Now I have to get them every time. I don't care that they're digital. I have to have them. So the first couple nights I come in after the run, I say, Wendy, I ran like two and a half miles. I ran three miles. And Wendy's like, that's fantastic. I'm so glad that you're doing this. It's going to be so healthy for you. And I'm so proud of you. And, you know, it's a really great thing. But over the next weeks, you know, I kept going out night after night, pushing harder and harder. And, and, and uh, you know, I guess pushing myself harder and harder. And one night I had just really beat all of my previous records by a lot. And I was super excited. And I came in, sort of stumbled in the door. And I told Wendy, I said, you will not believe this. You won't believe this. I ran 6.8 miles. They were barely just over 10 minute miles. And I know that to a marathon runner, that's nothing. To me, it was an accomplishment. And, and I expected her to, you know, jump up, throw confetti in the air, tell me how awesome I was. And, and um, she looked at me and she said, I'm not impressed by that. And I thought, what? And she said, no, I'm not impressed by that. She's like, you come in here, you're just spouting off numbers. Like, I'm supposed to be, think that's the greatest thing in the world. It's too much for you. That, that's, too, that's, that's too far to run. You should be running like two and a half miles, three miles. I don't, I don't know what you want from me. I, I, I think it's really too much for you. And I'm, I don't know, I'm not impressed by that. So, you know, I'm marching downstairs to go take a shower and cool off. I'm thinking I'm married to a vindictful and hurtful woman. And, uh, I'm going to get out my copy of Love and Respect and show my wife that Dr. Egrick says she's supposed to respect me. I'm going to get out my copy of, of the five love languages. See, that's the problem with being a marriage coach. I have all the books, you know. And I'm, I'm thinking I can prove that that was the wrong thing to do, you know. I'm in the shower. I'm trying to cool off. And I think to myself, you know, Jonathan, at some point you've got to drink your own Kool-Aid. And we have this thing that we say underneath every unreasonable reaction is a reasonable pain or fear. And I thought, did she give me... Any reason, any reasonable thing underneath that, that that I should have been listening to. And it dawned on me, she said it was too much for me. And I thought, maybe she thought I was going to get hurt or something, right? So I go back upstairs. And by the way, you should know, this is the one bright, shining moment in my entire married life. I never do stuff this brilliant. This one, one time, and it was by accident. But still, I'm going to tell the story everywhere I go. But I come upstairs, and, and I ask Wendy, I said, were you afraid that I was going to get hurt or something? And I see this little tear come out the one side of her face. And she says, that's exactly what I'm worried about. She said, I know you, Jonathan. She said, I know that you probably had 200 ounces of Coca-Cola in your system today. 
She said, the heat index out there is 104. You were out for over an hour, and she said, when you came in, you looked green. You didn't look pale, you looked green. And she said, I have this mental image of you lying face down somewhere on a sidewalk in an ambulance having to come along and scrape you up and take you to the hospital. And she said, you're too good of a dad and a husband, and I don't want to lose you. You know, what's interesting is what in the first place sounded like a huge insult turned out to be one of the greatest compliments she ever paid me. She said, for, I mean, to, to hear that was like, whoa, it was huge for me to hear her say that. I felt totally loved and supported and, and valued when she said that. And here's the thing. I've, I've, I've gone to different places in the country. I've told that story. You know what usually happens? When I say that Wendy said, I'm not impressed by that, I usually get 500 perplexed looks across the room. 500 people going, what in the world, you know? But then when I say that Wendy said, you're too good of a husband and dad and I don't want to lose you, it's like I get 500 light bulbs. It's like 500 people just identified with what Wendy was feeling. They got it, right? Now, you realize I didn't do that. I didn't make light bulbs come on. What happened was in your heart, when you listened to that story, you knew what it was like to not want to lose somebody. You know what it's like to have somebody that you care about make risky decisions and worry about if everything is going to be okay. And the moment that you tied those two things together, it made total sense. And that's why Jesus asked questions, I think, is because he understood that underneath the first blush reaction, underneath the first thing that you hear, there's always something deeper. And if you can get to that thing that's deeper, it changes the whole face of the conversation. What is it about that that bothers you so much? Try that and see how it works for you. I know that it's worked for tons and tons of couples that we've, we've worked with so far. Okay, so by the way, I, I, I want to I close out with this. I, um, I worked, my last church that I worked at was Edmonds First Baptist Church. And it was in, uh, Edmond is the north side of Oklahoma City, a little suburb on the north side of Oklahoma City. And um, we had uh, a great church, a great pastor. Dr. Allen Day was our pastor. He was a phenomenal guy. He was an incredible Bible scholar, and I loved um, getting to learn from him. He was, he was just a really um, wise person as it came to understanding what the Bible has to say. Um, unfortunately, uh, Alan passed away in a motorcycle accident a few months after I came here uh, to New Spring. But I have a, a favorite story that I remember about him. We had a yearly Bible conference, and we would have these incredible speakers come in from all over the country to participate in the conference. And, and it was a nightly event. We had stuff during the day, but it was also a nightly event. We wouldn't get done till like after nine uh, with all these speakers, you know, um, uh, bringing messages and so forth. And so uh, Alan would always take the speakers to a late dinner after the whole thing was over. And you've got, you know, a big table. You've got speakers and their wives. Sometimes there's 12 people at the table. And it was a night like that. Big, big table full of folks uh, there. And they went to a nice restaurant. And um, it was late. Everybody was tired. And they noticed that the waiter seemed out of sorts from the very beginning. I mean, the guy was just sort of, you know, clanging plates down on the table and being kind of short with people. And just, you know how it is when you can just tell somebody's not, they're, they're not a, having a good day. And, and so that started, that murmuring started to happen at the table. You know, whenever the waiter was, was a ways away, everybody was kind of saying, oh, I guess he's having a bad day, you know. But, you know, you don't say that when the waiter's over there at the table, right? You talk about the waiter behind their back, right? When they come back to the table, then everybody hushes, you know, nobody talks. But Alan wasn't that kind of person. So the guy comes back out, and Alan turns his chair toward the waiter, and he says, are you okay? Are you having an all right day? And uh, the waiter said, well, now that you asked, no, I'm, I'm not okay. I'm not having a good day. And Alan said, why don't you sit down and talk to us about it? And he said, well, I'm doing my job. I'm, I'm, I'm on duty, you know? And Alan said, well, how many tables are you serving? And he said, just one, just you're 
big table here, and he said, well, then we've got time. Sit down and let's talk. So the waiter sat down and started to talk about the fact that his mother was ill and his family was a long ways away, and he felt stressed out and hurt and didn't know what to do about it and just was really going through a, a time of, of kind of depression. And, and uh, so when he, when he was talking to those guys, at some point he said, what is it that you guys do? Because, you know, he's talking to a table, a bunch of people in suits, you know, on a Tuesday night, and he's wondering, what are the, these people are asking me about my life? And they said, well, you know, we, we're pastors. And he said, oh, I don't go in for that religion thing. And they said, that's fine. We just wanted to, and Alan said, I just wanted to know what's going on. And they talked and they talked for 30 minutes. They sit here and talk to this waiter. And, and at the end of the conversation, I found this out secondhand from one of the other pastors who happened to be at the table. At the end of the conversation, this young man, this waiter, received Christ. He prayed to receive Christ in this restaurant with this table full of pastors that he was with. And when he got up from the table, he said this. And I, I had put it in my email a long time ago, so I'd keep, keep track of it. And I had to go looking for it because I couldn't find it. But, but I finally found it. This is what the waiter said before... Uh, before he left, he told us to Alan. He said, I've worked here for years in a restaurant staff of 50. He said, you're the first person who's ever asked me if everything was okay and what you could do. See, when, when, when we ask a question like, what can I do for you? Are you okay? Are you having a good day? What's, what's going on? Talk to me. When we start to say those sorts of things, we communicate value. It's why Jesus... That's why Jesus was asking questions. That, that, wasn't for the, that wasn't for his benefit. Jesus doesn't ask, you know, our, Jesus doesn't ask that kind of question to, for, for his benefit. He asks it for ours. He wants us to talk to him. Sometimes people get so weirded out about prayer. I don't know if I'm praying right. I don't know if I'm saying the right words. I don't know if I'm doing enough times a day. Do we recognize that when we pray, we're just answering God's question? God is saying, how are you doing? Do you need to talk to me about anything? Is there anything that I can do for you? You know, just as a parent asks their child, what's going on in your world? Talk to me. That's what, that's what God has left that open-ended question out to us. And when we pray, we're just answering a question. And the reason that he asks the question is because he values us. So when you go about your daily routine tomorrow, when all the wheels of Monday start spinning into motion, try this. Try walking into the day going, I'm going to ask more questions than I'm going to make statements. I'm going to ask people for their opinion. I'm going to ask people to, I'm, I'm going to give information, give them a chance to make a call. I'm not going to tell them all the calls they need to make. I'm going to give them information and I'm going to let them make a call. And then I'm going to ask questions that prove to them that I care about what they're going through. And see how it works. It might just change your entire success pattern in your life. It might just make you the most charismatic and influential person that anybody around you knows. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you've proven to us that you care about us, you value us, and you give us the freedom to make decisions. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. I talked about earlier, I said the biggest question that anybody will ever ask you is when God asks you, do you want to have a relationship with me? God did not create this world full of robots. God created this world with real people who have the capacity to make decisions. And when his son died on the cross to pay for the things that we've done wrong, it was an invitation to make a decision to have a relationship with him. If you're in this room and you've never done that before, the question is on the table. It's because God loves you and he values you and he's waiting for an answer. If that's something that you want to solidify today, you want to make that decision, you want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, let's take this opportunity and do that. I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer and you can say this silently in your head to God and if you will, it'll be your answer to his question and it'll settle this forever. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, Thank you that you love me. 
thank you that you died and rose again for me. I know I do wrong things, and I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. Thank you for making me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody look this way for just a minute. Hey, if you just prayed with me to receive Christ, would you do me a favor? Would you take that talk to us card that you received? Check the box that says, I prayed to receive Christ. Take it to guest services. We have a really cool gift we'd like to give you in a Bible to start your journey with Christ. Thank you for being here. Next week, we finish out King of Talk. Thanks. Okay, so-